Let's set the table for a new year. Will it be in a shiny new downtown tower? A tiny local joint? Maybe your own living room? Will the food be vegan, comforting, zesty? Will the drinks be boozy, buzzy, or have barely any alcohol at all? I'm Jennifer Smith, and this is the Codcast, Commonwealth Beacon's podcast about policy and civic life here in Massachusetts. And I am delighted to spend our first 2024 episode with Deborah First, the restaurant critic and food writer for the Boston Globe. Deborah, thank you for being here on the Codcast, and Happy New Year. Thank you so much for having me, and Happy New Year to you as well. So I wish I did have a snack before we got started recording so I don't get munchy. So that is a risk. But let's talk about some food, shall we? Let's do it. I didn't have breakfast. So <laughs> you this <laughs> might be a, a podcast of hangry people, but we'll basically, see. yeah, totally. <laughs> so do you remember actually the first thing that made you think, oh yeah, I'm gonna pay attention to food forever? I think I mean, don't we all pay attention to food forever? I think I just always paid attention to food and other things as well, but um, but food has, you know, was always just a theme. I grew up in a fairly food-focused household. Um, my mom was always cooking and trying new things. You know, I remember she made risotto before you could get the right kind of rice, and it was kind of a disaster. But it was just always, we were always, like, trying new foods and interested in the in the world. And I lived abroad a bit as a, as a kid, so I got exposed to a lot of different kinds of cuisine through that, which I think cemented my interest. And you ended up, of course, making a career out of it at some point. So how does how does one end up in that business in case anyone's interested out there? For me, I think it was um, sort of right place, right time, um, right interest. And I think how one might do it now would, would probably be quite different. But I was working at the Globe and I, I had previously worked at the Phoenix where I first started um, writing about food here and there on the side. I was a staff editor, but um, but I was writing some shorter food pieces. And then at the Globe, I wound up copy editing the food section every week. So I got to know uh, the food editor at the time, Cheryl Julian, and started writing for her and started pitching in on various column rotations um, such that when the previous restaurant critic, Allison Arnett, left, um, I thought, well, I'll throw my hat in the ring um, and wildly um, cut, got the opportunity to, to do this job. So um, it was really fortuitous and I feel very lucky about it. Well, have you thought about kind of eras of food criticism as you've really kind of settled in here? How would you sort of distinguish the way that we've talked about what restaurants and what food are kind of worthy of a of a critical eye and how that's maybe changed over time? I do think so much has changed over time. You know, Boston has changed so much over time as a food city. It sort of was historically, you know, a bit maybe conservative and stayed that old, you know, notion of the New England chowder house and all of that. Um, and then there was this sort of really exciting era um, of independent restaurateurs and uh, and innovation, um, you know, sort of the Todd English, Barbara Lynch, uh, Gordon Hammersley, Jody Adams, Lydia Shire, all those people um, sort of started coming onto the scene and making Boston a really exciting place to eat. And, um, and that sort of kicked off, you know, the modern heyday. But 
as the economy goes, so goes the food scene. So when I sort of really started writing about food, you know, then it came 2008 and we had a lot of comfort food, like instead of lobster, it was lobster macaroni and cheese because it's a business with such thin margins and food costs and overhead and labor. And, and so, you know, it's really people being creative, um, with what they can do within a business model and still stay in business if all goes very well. So, um, so yeah, you know, I think it's, it's seen a lot of ups and downs. And um, I think during the pandemic, when we started hearing a lot about what was happening for restaurants and learning about workers conditions and people's consciousness being raised in some ways about all of the, you know, I think of the the duck swimming and, and it's very elegant gliding on the surface and all of the frantic paddling that goes on underneath. I think as diners began to learn more about that frantic paddling and we started talking more about labor and living wages and also as a labor crunch um, worsened with no really ease in sight for that you know, we, we've started to see people trying different models of how to make restaurants work in a more humane way and how to make it work when it's hard to find um, skilled people to help it run. So, you know, I'll always, I think what keeps me writing about food is that it's a lens onto the rest of the world and that the rest of the world influences it. So, you know, whatever's happening in the economy and real estate and business, and the world is always sort of in an interplay with the restaurant ecosystem. And that makes it interesting. Yeah. And and thinking about the pandemic and its impact on the way that we talked about food, really, it was it was right there from the jump. I think, you know, we can all remember seeing the lines outside of the bars right before they all closed for in-person service. And I think March 2020, if we act like that was a real year that we all lived through, um, there was that weird ghost town feel uh, in basically all of these kind of downtowns and city centers before everyone got a handle on what outdoor dining might look like there was legislation that had to do with cocktails to go and other innovations there. There was the sourdough at home. Uh, there were closures of locally beloved eateries, you know, the rise of kind of new classics and some really interesting small joints. So how have you tried to track essentially how we felt about the pandemic through these changes in Food. I, I really love that you brought up labor and we're going to get to that, I think, more toward the end of the conversation. But thinking about where food is made and what role it has in kind of bringing people out, what did the pandemic sort of reveal for you? Oh, where to begin with that question? Um, so many, so many ways to answer that. You know, I think what it really revealed to me, because I had always been um, a food first person, like, I don't care, you can serve me in a closet. And like, you can hit me on the head with the plate as you put it down, like, so long as the food really tastes great, I am not going to be upset about much of the other things. But what I began to understand on a more visceral level, is the importance of the hospitality itself to diners. And you know, that, that that's the reason as much as anything, if not more so, that, that people go out to eat is that 
that feeling of community and gathering and being cared for uh, and being in relationship with other humans. I think there are ways, ironically, that eating professionally as a restaurant critic sort of deprives you of that in a way that can can take a writer away from like the actual function of actually eating out for your readers. Um, so it was interesting to to really understand that and to and to start shifting the way that I saw that um, and the importance of that. So that was one thing. I mean, there there are so many things I could say about that, but also, you know, you mentioned the ghost town of downtown, and you know, the Globe Office is is right downtown. And certainly I would say that that for the restaurants around there, it hasn't necessarily changed for some of them, for a lot of them. And, you know, I went and grabbed some takeout recently from a newer restaurant around there. And I was just talking with the owner and she just said, yeah, I don't I don't know if I can stay open because people still are not going to the office in those downtown areas and it's sort of right now it's this very off-balance thing of some restaurants being packed and it's hard to get a reservation and it feels so busy when you go out to dinner and then these other places just getting no business at all and you know how is this going to tip as we see people move out toward the suburbs where more people may be working from home and and more centrally located and also where it's less expensive and easier to operate in many ways and there's parking and all of those things. Um, I, I am curious about what is your read speaking of that on kind of efforts mm-hmm. to get folks back downtown because Boston has an ad campaign right now that's specifically focused on kind of like lunch at home versus downtown that in my view at least kind of weirdly dunks on packing your own lunch it seems to imply that your sandwiches that you make for yourself are bad but you know does is a very food focused kind of attempt to sort of get that sort of city center feeling going again so so have you noticed anything about the way that cities and towns specifically around greater Boston have been dealing with this space in between things are either closed or outdoor dining, but everything is not kind of, you know, back in the way that it uh, might like to be. I appreciate that ad campaign. And I, I also feel like best of luck. Like, I don't think that wishful thinking is going to make downtowns come back. You know, I, um, sadly not a policymaker and, and but I I think that um you know I think there's going to need to be some real effort and real thinking around that which I'm sure there is and I know there is but I don't know what the answer to bringing people back downtown um during the day in the way that it used to be is going to be um particularly with the housing situation And so, yeah, I I suspect those things are interrelated, housing and having people downtown. This might be a little bit of a loaded question, but I guess, is that a problem conceptually in ways separate from the business sense? Uh, We're going to talk a bit about the things that you looked at in 2023 and kind of looking forward into 2024. But as with things that are not just sourdough, people really did spend the last few years cooking at home. And so there's been a bit of a pivot in the way that, for instance, markets and food have approached the idea of your home might be 
the best restaurant that you currently have access to. So have you seen anything in restaurant trends or in market trends that have made you think that we're reassessing what it means to kind of enjoy good dining, not even fine dining, but like good, excellent food? I would say, you know, certainly the crowds that are out in the hot new restaurants that are opening, you know, when Amar opened at Raffles, like you couldn't get a, a reservation to save your life. And, you know, I ate dinner at like 9.30 on a Tuesday just because I I was like able to sneak in. <laughs> um, they took pity on me. And so I think, you know, that is promising. But also I, I really wonder about the sustainability of this because we have so many restaurants you know there's restaurants keep opening all the time and so we'll support you when you've just opened um we'll come out in droves but how about a year in two years in what what is it going to take now to open and run a successful restaurant over time so so i just I do wonder a lot about the sustainability, but that said, I'm going to take, you know, these full dining rooms and this lively scene as a positive sign in that regard. Also, I do think that um, takeout and delivery are these very vital streams for restaurants now, much more than they were prior to the pandemic and, you know, fast casual takeout delivery kinds of options are going to remain um, important for restaurants, you know, as as secondary revenue streams or, you know, tertiary, I don't know. Um, and so, you know, we'll continue to see more of that and, and hopefully, and so new models, you know, we see a lot of these places opening that are like, it's a grocery store with like some fancy fun stuff and some regular everyday stuff. And also you can get takeout and also maybe there's a pop-up arm to it, um, that kind of, you know, model or things that take you through the day, you know, you can come get coffee and, you know, some pastry and have a meeting with your client and you can work there, you can get your lunch there. And then at night you can have a cocktail or a non-alcoholic cocktail and, um, and eat dinner and gather, you know, and maybe there's something like, you know, bocce court or, you know, some other kind of, because people are looking for these experiences or, or something to do while they're eating, you know, board games. I don't, there's, I just think any, any place that can touch on multiple bases, um, you know, we're going to just keep seeing more of that. And also like themed dinners and cookbook clubs and, and things that bring people back um, regularly and give you like more reason than just going out to dinner because there are so many places that you can go out to dinner, um, you know, proximity, parking, all of these things um, are going to come into play. You know, I also, you know, it's winter and I just got an email from, you know, one of my medical providers saying, you know, we're instituting masks again because Spread is extremely high right now, COVID, flu, RSV, and we like to talk as if we're back in normal times, but um, who knows what can happen in the future um, in terms of that kind of thing. And if everybody starts getting sick, maybe people stop going out less again, you know, during the winter, which is already a very slow time 
it's hard for restaurants um, when they maybe tend to go out of business. And if they didn't have bang up holiday seasons with all those holiday parties that used to get them through the slow times, then what, you know, and also the election is coming up and what's going to happen there um, may have all, uh, unseen, unforetold effects. So it's just, you know, it's always sort of a work in progress and we'll just see. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, we've got maybe a little bit of, of 2020 hindsight then, because let's talk about last year and then let's talk about this year, which I believe is 2024. I'm not sure yet. We're all only four days. In. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I I keep saying 2023. So we'll just go. Exactly. I think it's 2024. Yeah, it's 2020 something. Um, I was delighted to see uh, Comfort Kitchen, which is pretty near me in Dorchester, get your kind of top mark for, for 2023 in terms of overall restaurants, but I was wondering if you could kind of talk about the way that you were approaching, what is it that makes a best of in 2023? What was different this last year than other years? And was there anything that kind of surprised you in restaurant trends or restaurateurs? Right. I mean, well, first I'll speak, you know, to Comfort Kitchen, which I think for me, you know, as always, the thing is it has to have consistent, delicious food and Comfort Kitchen uh, really nails that it had a lot of time to sort of test and refine its concept. Um, it started as a pop-up in JP for for quite some time. Um, and so I think it really got everything into, into shape so it could really hit the ground running when it opened in the brick and mortar in Dorchester. Um, I think also it has this very lovely sense of hospitality, but it's also just very casual. It's not, um, there, it's not like one of those places where they call you madam and, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's not, it's not like tablecloth-y and, and formal. It's just like genuine hospitality. And I do think that in restaurants in 2024, like what is hospitality? I think it's what really makes you feel good as a, as a human rather than like, this is a fancy thing because eating out has become so much more of a regular thing than it was in the era of, and hello, sir, how are we doing this evening? You know, now it's sort of more of a feeling of we're all in this together. And I think that uh, Comfort Kitchen is really lovely in the way that it welcomes in everybody in the area and it doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, you know, are you, what handbag you have, like what car you drove in on, like you took the tea or hopefully you biked, like, you know, everybody has the same experience and, and the food. I think another thing that, that we see that we're seeing from restaurants and will continue to see from restaurants is the concept of telling a story, having something beyond like we have French food, um, or this is a restaurant, you know, where it's like at Comfort Kitchen, they've taken the African diaspora and the like trading routes um, of spices, the maritime trading routes, and sort of trace those through space and time. Um, and how it's sort of, you know, how does food evolve? Like how, how do we as humans in different cultures, like adapt and adopt to hardships and, you know, necessity and migration. And so I think it's intellectually interesting and satisfying um, if you want to think about it, but also you don't have to think about it. You can just eat and drink and have a good time. And so I think 
that's really nice. I think people are wanting to see more stories like that presented. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about cultural appropriation and the restaurant space and Comfort Kitchen is owned and run by immigrants and women and queer people and doing something really interesting um, and new that feels like it could succeed in any city. It's here in Boston. Um, it's in Dorchester. And, you know, to see fine dining, it got recognized by the New York Times in Dorchester, like, you know, get national attention is really satisfying to me as somebody who spent a lot of time in Dorchester over the years and, and didn't see that happening. Um, you know, it's like Boston's biggest neighborhood and it's just, <laughs> um, you know, I, I love Dorchester because I, I worked there for so long. The Globe offices were there and, and it's just really pleases me to, to see it recognized. Um, you and me both. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. it's no, mis <laughs> no mystery to anyone listening to yeah. this. I'm a number one Dorchester booster. I, also wanted to touch on kind of the accompaniment, if anything else, you know, don't usually talk about food without also talking about drinks. And so there's sort of a look back, a look forward here, where one thing that you noted um, as kind of an innovation was uh, more of a use of like BYOB, bring your own booze, beer, depending on your license, it can mean whatever B you want, which is something that you think would be more common, especially in places like Boston, which allows you to have BYOB licenses, but isn't really all that common. And then you have the broader question of what do you do with people literally drinking less? It's dry January right now, but if people still want something fun to drink, they still probably want to try and find something more interesting than flat or sparkling water. So what have you seen last year in terms of drink trends and how are you envisioning kind of a, a pivot going forward, especially as people are drinking less than they used to? Well, I think licensing in Boston and the various forms that takes is a whole stew that, that maybe, you know, we'll keep that issue separate for now. Um, people are just drinking less and particularly at younger people and the sort of people who are more likely to go out like every night <laughs> um, are drinking less. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that health awareness and health stuff. Um, and, you know, the rise in um, recreational marijuana and um, just all kinds of things. You know, we have this like fitness culture where you can fine tune yourself with apps and adaptogens. And I think that's really, that's really affecting it as well. So, you know, that is a big way that restaurants make money is through alcohol sales. So I think restaurants need to respond to that change and also want to respond to that change. Um, and so we do see these non-alcoholic cocktail programs coming up and there are so many more new products coming onto the scene in terms of, you know, alcohol-free bitters and, um, you know, mixers and all kinds of things where we can make you a really tasty drink playing on all of our bartender skills. Um, and it's gonna be just like drinking a cocktail in every way, except for one, which is that you're not gonna get drunk and you're not gonna be consuming alcohol. You know, I think, 
for people who are engaged in sobriety, this is like a really wonderful thing. You can go out with your friends now and um, not feel like any kind of pressure or, or left outness. Um, and, you know, I just think we are going to continue to see more of this. I spoke with someone in the beverage industry who said, you know, it's now, it's now mandatory um, for restaurants to have non-alcoholic options that are satisfying. Um, it's not, you know, it's like they compared it to cider. Um, suddenly you had to have a cider line. Now you have to have non-alcoholic alternatives and, we're just going to keep seeing more of that for as long as this is a trend, which I see it continuing to be. And I think, you know, maybe we'll start seeing more use of adaptogenic ingredients. You know, if you want to fine tune your mood in some way, like this cocktail contains herbs that will chill you out. So, you know, and things also that will like be okay, like you just ate a lot of gummies, like, you know, here is a cocktail that will accompany you in that way. Um, so we'll see, you know, I just think things are going to get better tasting. We're also, you know, seeing that labor crunch for bars. So where, you know, a few years back, you would see all these handmade syrups and essences and concentrates and things like that. I think there's a lot less time to just be making all those fun, cool things anymore. So, you know, we're going to see pre-prepared products that do, that do some of that work already. And that, and those can be mixed with, you know, sparkling water or whatever. And, and to kind of touch on that labor question there in your look ahead for 2024, you did identify sort of these labor shortages and, you know, the, the shortages that we've been seeing have often been due to, as you noted, kind of labor and condition disputes, especially during the pandemic. So what's the sense that you've gotten from talking with folks? Is this expected to be kind of a continuous problem going forward into the next year? Or has there been any kind of breaking, softening in there? On the shortage itself? Yeah. I don't think that we are going to see any change on that. And in fact, um, it's going to likely get worse because, you know, I spoke with Jerry Rubin, who is a visiting fellow at the Project on the Workforce at Harvard, and he co-authored this report um, addressing the labor shortage in Massachusetts. It's pretty eye-opening report. Um, and what he also found, you know, delving into the data that it is a problem for Massachusetts. We We have this aging population. Um, there more people are leaving than coming in who are able to work and more people dying than being born. And it's not a good recipe for labor. Uh, it's not a good outlook. But nationally, there's going to be struggles around this. And, you know, in terms of, of what might ease that pain, certainly things like a better working conditions, um, you know, higher pay, are great. And then there's only, I think, so much that restaurants can really do that because there's not much financial leeway in that regard. And, you know, I've had chefs say to me, like, you know, we used to look for people with real skills. Now we just look for people with a pulse. <laughs> like, it's pretty dire. And, and Jerry Rubin said, it's only going to get worse from here. I think if there is any kind of answer, it's that where 
the population is increasing is in terms of um, immigration and that, you know, it's not just food service, it's service in general and particularly the healthcare industry. Uh, you know, this is a real issue. And we have this migrant population arriving, waiting to be able to work, waiting to get papers so that they can work. You know, I know everybody's working on this and, and the spe it's speeding up, it's getting better, but here we do have um, this pool of potential new labor and that might be helpful, but also again, what happens in the next election may affect immigration patterns. So it's really, um, you know, I, I don't know, I don't think, I just think it's going to continue to be a pain point for restaurants and service industries in general. All right. Uh, final one. The restaurant critic as a concept is often considered someone who like hides their face, wears a fake mustache, puts on the fedora, sneaks into the restaurant, reviews it secretly, whatever. What's your process? Do you do you have to hide yourself or at this point, uh, everyone's on the Internet? You just kind of assume. I think for anybody sort of coming in to restaurant criticism, which is definitely um, fewer you know, there aren't nationally that many restaurant critics anymore because of what's happening in journalism, budgetary concerns. It is a job that to sort of do it journalistically um, takes, you know, takes a budget. And so certainly we've seen a cutting back on that across the board. But anybody now, um, you know, it's the Internet and and anybody's images on it. Um, you know, I've sort of tried to keep my image out of it as much as possible and and that's you know probably as much for my own sake <laughs> as anything um you know some people have said you know I'm coming out and like you know posting <laughs> their pictures in other cities and there's all kinds of ways to do it none of them right or wrong um just different different approaches but I think for me um having the notion like even if everybody recognizes me, which I think sometimes people do, and I think sometimes people still don't, but having to pretend that I'm not getting special treatment, even if they do recognize me, is actually helpful for everybody. Um, it's helpful for me. You know, I've gone out to eat with people whose images are out there and they get like a lot of freebies and special treatment and the chef comes over and they get the best table in it it really does make a difference. And I'd at least like to have the pretense of being treated like any diner who comes in. Um, I think it helps rein in that impulse. And I also think sometimes people get nervous. And so maybe it's helpful to them if they don't know who I am in some way as well. Um, so, you know, I just, I make reservations um, under a different name. I use a credit card with a different name. You know, I just try to, go in and eat and have as regular of an experience or as close to the experience that other people might have when they go to the restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again to Deborah first for joining me on the podcast. Uh, you will probably not see her out there, but it's possible that you will. <laughs> thank you for listening. Uh, I'm Jennifer Smith. Our producer is John Gee. Leave a rating review wherever you're hearing this now if you want to help other folks find us and email podcast at commonwealthbeacon.org if you ever want to get in touch directly. We'll be back in your ears next week. Happy New Year. Mm -hmm.